Aung San Suu Kyi is detained in Myanmar as the military takes power in the country. Former US President Donald Trump is having difficulty finding lawyers to represent him. And Melbourne may become the first city in Australia to have a nighttime mayor. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. So hello and welcome to the late edition. Today I'm joined by Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck and Monocle 24 producer and culture correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome to the programme. Fernando, I am glad to see that you have been finally able to leave your home quarantine after a holiday in Brazil. How was it? Ten days at home. I have to say it feels very strange. The first thing I did was, of course, come here to the office to be here on the late edition. I was like, oh my God, how do I walk actually on the streets properly? (laughs) Unfortunately, it's been quite... Your uh, walk didn't look funny. (laughs) Well, I'm always a bit insecure about the way I walk, actually, Mark. It's a bit of a strange thing that I have. Uh, But it's nice. It's nice to breathe some fresh air, even though it's super cold and grey here in London. But, you know, it's life. Well, Andrew... um, I, I, it, it doesn't look like you feel awkward about running around London. You've got this amazing new hobby. I'm wondering, how is it going with that? Have you found new exciting running routes? Uh, well, I, I, I have similar running routes, but, but the good thing where I, I live, you can be in the, the commercial part of the city, in the, in the city of London, in, in about 10 minutes. And the streets there are just properly empty, whether, whether it's the weekend or even during the week. You, you, you run down roads where there would normally be tons of people and there's just the security guards in these amazing lobbies standing guard over buildings where there's no one else, I think, <laughs> in occupancy at all. So it's been like discovering the city a little bit afresh and it's, uh, it's been amazing. Yeah, so with Jim's shot, it's forced me out onto the streets. Are we going to be seeing you at the London Marathon 2021 or 22, perhaps? I think that's a bit of a stretch, because you've done the half marathon. You, uh, did you do a full one or just a no, half? No, it's always been halves, okay. a few times. I, I, I like doing things by halves, so, so maybe <laughs> I'll join you next time. Fair enough, that sounds good. Well, let's look at the biggest news on our agenda today. Let's first head to Southeast Asia. Myanmar's military has taken control of the country after arresting de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other politicians overnight. A state of emergency has also been declared for one year. A bit earlier today we heard from Professor Penny Green. She's the head of the law department at Queen Mary University of London, founder and director of the award-winning International State Crime Initiative and an expert on Myanmar. Let's hear what she had to say. I mean, the military were extremely powerful with the NLD in power. It was what was seen as a special relationship. The NLD held the three most important ministries in the country, defence, border and home affairs. It also retained 25% of the parliamentary seats. So it was the constitution was never able to be changed. The military held a really complete power under the NLD civilian government. So in some senses, some people are speculating that this is a one-man coup, that General Commander Min Ong Lai, uh, who is due to retire this year as he turns 65, in, in some ways it's a bid for him to extend power and, of course, power for its own sake, but also the power to control the wealth that he and his cronies have extracted from the um, Myanmar people. I think that there are a number of issues at stake. It wasn't, I think, anticipated until last week 
largely because it was widely recognised that the Myanmar military did hold such power within the country. Aung San Suu Kyi clearly did see this coming from at least a few days away. She issued this statement prior to her detention, urging resistance people to reject the coup d'etat, etc. How solid is her support within Myanmar, as far as we can tell? Are people likely to heed that call? I think that they could very well do so. She has still has a tremendous amount of support, while her um, status in the rest of the world has declined dramatically because of her role in the genocide against the Rohingya. Nonetheless, inside Myanmar, the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi are still immensely popular. And you could see in last November's elections that the NLD won a landslide victory, which is part of the problem for the military, of course, because they see that the strength of support for civilian rule and for a democratic process is strong within the country. And that strength will ultimately threaten longer term the authority and power of the military. So I think that there is likelihood that there will be resistance, but it's difficult because in some senses it could be argued that civil society has in some senses been captured by the NLD. So when it came to the genocide of the Rohingya, there was no support inside Myanmar or almost no support inside Myanmar for the Rohingya when um, the, the atrocities were taking place against them, atrocities perpetrated by Minong Lai and his Tatmadaw military, uh, supported the whole way through, we have to say, by Aung San Suu Kyi. So this is a civil society that um, will, I think, listen to the call of Aung San Suu Kyi. It is somewhat out of practice, if you like, in terms of, of resistance. In the previous military regimes, the um, political resistance was organised very often underground and outside the country, largely in, in Thailand. But it was very strong and very persistent. It'll be interesting to see what happens now, particularly given that some of the leaders of that resistance have now been arrested and detained by the military. Professor Penny Green there speaking to Monaco's Andrew Muller a bit early on today's edition of The Briefing. Fernando, if I come to you first, it's the question Penny raised over there as well. What is happening now? Aung San Suu Kyi has been urging resistance and protest. Do you think she'll get as much international support as during her previous long stretch of house arrest prior to coming to power? That's an interesting question because, you know, as Penny Green was saying, uh, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, she had quite a lot of backlash uh, with world leaders because of that, uh, you know, the kind of the treatment of the Rohingyas uh, in her own country. But at the same time, there's been condemnations already because of the coup. I mean, the US, Europe, even China said that they hope Myanmar resolve its differences. So I think there will be condemnation, but perhaps it's not going to be just about Aung San Suu Kyi and, and just more about democracy uh, in Myanmar in a way. And And it has to be said, I mean, this coup is the first one uh, against the civilian government since 1962. So it's quite remarkable. They said they're going to be there for a year. But, I mean, can we really trust this junta? I'm not really sure about that. What is your take, Andrew? Do you think Aung San Suu Kyi will get a lot of support from other countries? I think Fernando is correct. You know, that while there is support coming forward for democracy and for, uh, you know, nobody wants around the world wants to see another military government uh, take control of Burma, I do think that it's it's quite muted the actual support for Aung San Suu Kyi because of this Rohingya issue. The kind of shine came off her of her as this kind of 
yeah, incredible, peaceful leader. She was she was very coy about what she said about the protection of Muslim minorities in the country when they were being persecuted. It was seen potentially at the time because she didn't want to rile the military, but now she's you know come undone because the military have turned against her. And again, it's it will be interesting to see what can the the US do. You know, they, they say they will take action, but we we've seen what action means in all of these instances these days. It means you know putting some pressure on the leaders, you know, of, of sanctions on on certain people. It is un- unlikely to change the narrative. That kind of action. What's more interesting is you know, that many of these people have got wealthy through investment coming into the country, whether they're in the military or in political positions, both from China and from outside investors, whether that's you know, new hotels in Yangon or building infrastructure. And it's those people, I think, that may put the pressure on the military to say, look, this, is, this isn't going to go well. If, the, if, if you turn off the taps of, of investment, then our money will get lost. So I think they, they, may, they may find a little bit more bruising taking over control of the country than they have in the past. But you just look around the neighbourhood, you, you look to Thailand, you look to many of these other nations, where there's, there's just a kind of terribly, even now, just a tradition of the, the military stepping in where they, they fear that their powers are going to be annulled. And and those neighbouring countries, do you think they actually have an interest to try to meddle with what's what's happening in Myanmar? We're hearing from the US, but we haven't really heard that much from from Southeast Asia, for example. No, because they're all in a slightly tricky position. All of them have strong militaries, uh, a tradition of, of of coups, and and they they don't want to kind of put the spotlight on themselves. You know, a very difficult time in, in Thailand in many ways at the moment. And even if you go broader to like Vietnam and, and Cambodia, which have very settled governments at the moment, you know, it's still a strong role for the military there, uh, not exactly pure bastions of democracy. So it would be very difficult for them to come out and criticise what's happened in Burma. Well, let's next continue to the United States. This time next week, former US President Donald Trump will make history as the first president to be tried twice on articles of impeachment by the US Senate, this time for his role in fomenting the Washington DC riot last month. While the Republicans in the Senate may be willing to indulge Trump again, he is having perhaps telling difficulty finding legal experts to represent him. Here is Susan Lynch. She is a Washington correspondent at the Irish Times. Donald Trump is not depending on the lawyers that he used before. So, for example, in other years at the last impeachment, we saw Ken Starr. People will remember from the Clinton impeachment, he was involved in the legal team, for example. They are not getting involved this year. And I think it's a sign that Donald Trump is finding it difficult to find legal teams that are taking him on, essentially. And once he's lost, you know, he's no longer president, he's going to be facing his own legal difficulties. We know that investigators in New York are scrutinizing his business affairs. And we know that financially, he's most likely under the squeeze at the moment. Susan Lynch there and indeed we can expect Donald Trump related news headlines next week again. But Andrew, if I come to you again, the news agenda internationally was dominated by Donald Trump and his tweets for four long years. How do you see the news landscape has changed since the inauguration of Joe Biden? Well, let's see what happens in, in the coming weeks and months. But it's extraordinary how the the news 
has changed. It's just gone a bit quieter. And that's what Biden promised when he, he came into power. It's, it's, it's focusing on the important things. It's focusing on, you know, is Biden delivering on his election promises? Can they, for example, get the number of people being vaccinated into the US up to the kinds of levels that will potentially bring around some kind of herd immunity, hopefully by the end of summer? Those are the things that should always have mattered. And, and, and suddenly that's what we're focusing on. Even if we were just talking about Burma and and there suddenly is you know what does the US have to say in this can it play a moderating role again it, it, it's wise counsel being offered by Washington DC I must say that there are two things to be wary of you know one it is only a few days since he he left power and he's he's not going to go completely quiet nor his family and that's important to remember and plus you mentioned here the the issue of his legal team the, the Republicans are not going to vote for a trial he's he's not going to be tried in the end so again let's let's not get too caught up on that and the other thing just remember is you know that what you have to be careful of is that a complete shutting out of the noise of his supporters millions and millions of americans did back trump still believe in the kinds of things he believed in and the the difficulty is if you're very effective at stopping millions of people sharing their views even if you find them distasteful and awful is somehow that that adds to their sense of you know a kind of feeling that the the state and society is against them and potentially you you then whip up you know enough fear and anger that brings in a trumpian candidate again in four years time so uh, it's good that the, the tone has changed but let's not forget that whether you like it or not u.s media should be giving some echo to the debates that are going on across the US. And continuing with a look at the changing news landscape, how much does it change journalists' work that when the US president talks, you can at least expect that you may get more truths than from his predecessor? Well, it obviously makes their jobs more interesting. And I think in a really important way, it makes them safer as well, because this this notion that, that, that all journalists were peddlers of fake news and that they were conspiring against the American people, not only upset many people and, and caused some anger, it, it, it literally put the lives of US journalists in in danger you 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 saw when american tv crews were filming they had bodyguards around them you know and and not just you know the odd security guards they had people in body armor trying to protect them fearing there could be snipers trying to take out news teams and that cooling of the debate i think this is also important for journalists it allows them to concentrate on on quizzing and testing rather than looking over their shoulder seeing if they're going to be attacked by a mob Fernando, how do you think other populist leaders in the world have felt the departure of Donald Trump, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, for example? Well, I think you'll be, you know, uh, quite a big loss for that movement because there was kind of a non-official alliance between countries with kind of ultra-conservative leaders. Of course, the US was leading that with Brazil. There was Poland, Hungary, among other countries as well. I think there's another 25 countries. But when Trump is not there anymore, of course, this will change the whole story. Uh, And and I genuinely think it will have an impact on the future president of Brazil in 2022 as well. Because, you know, Bolsonaro, I mean, he could always count on Trump as kind of being, you know, kind of similar policies, similar way of of talking in a way. So, yes, it it is a big loss. And I think a Joe Biden presidency 
you know, I think even in recent days, I mean, he had to moderate a little bit his tone because the U.S. is a massive uh, economic partner uh, to Brazil as well. So, yeah, it would be a big loss to that uh, kind of non-official alliance of ultra-conservative countries. Well, finally today, let's continue with news from Australia, because there is a chance that Melbourne may soon have Australia's first nighttime mayor. Let's hear more from Monocle. So Nick Muniz. Melbourne is looking to appoint a nighttime economy advisory committee. Now, what this means is that they're basically going to look to bring in 10 external leaders in retail, hospitality, the creative industries. You know, we're talking people running bars, restaurants, nightclubs to basically advise the city on what they can do to keep the nightlife going. Understandably, it's taken a dip in the last year. So they're looking for ways, I guess, to make sure the social and cultural life and the economy keeps ticking in the nighttime hours in Melbourne. And what I think is particularly interesting about this is I think it might pay the way for the first nightmare in Australia, which I think is an important role. It's acknowledging the significance of the nighttime economy. The reason being is that Mayor Sally Cap had planned to appoint a nighttime or after dark mayor in the lead up to the recent election, but the councillor she'd tapped for the role ultimately didn't make the cut or wasn't elected by his district. So this is obviously opening up the potential to bring in somebody external, perhaps not an elected nighttime mayor, but certainly a leader of the nighttime economy. And I think that's an incredibly good thing for Melbourne. Monocles and Nickman is there. Andrew, Amsterdam was the first country in the world to get a nighttime mayor back in 2014. Obviously, you have been following these positions, working with our urbanist programme. What kind of experiences have we had so far? How needed are nighttime mayors? Well, uh, Merrick Milan was the, the first uh, nighttime mayor in Amsterdam. And he came and spoke at one of our Quality of Life conferences he had a good line in very colourful shirts, I seem to remember, as as was many other things. But what was great about him was, you know, that he understood that, you know, that something very important happened at night. You know, that a huge number of people were employed. Uh, often the jobs that people managed to get in the nighttime economy were were entry jobs. So if you were a, a new migrant to a city. Uh, it's quite likely you might end up working in a restaurant or you might end up working in a bar. So these jobs were important for inclusion as well. Uh, He understood that, you know, that the dynamism of a city has to extend beyond 5pm if you want to retain the loyalty and the the excitement of a, a younger generation of people living in your cities. And they did an amazing job at looking after this, this, this this time after dark, you know, whether that was transportation, the security, uh, licensing laws. And that was then adopted by lots of other countries and lots of other cities around the world. But we're going to come to a point in hopefully in five, six, seven months time where every single city is going to have to think about how it regenerates, it, it rebuilds, it restarts, it, it, it turns over the engine again of its of its whole urban infrastructure and gets jobs going again. And this role of the nighttime mayor could be one of the most vital things, I think, for all cities. Every city should have somebody who says, OK, I can see what you're doing about getting to people to work in the morning, but let's think about what happens after dark, because this is a way of getting thousands of jobs back. But also, People are not going to return to cities, and you know the reason you go to many people go to their their jobs, their nine to five jobs, is because they know that at five thirty they can be in the pub, at seven o'clock they can be in a theatre, on a Friday night they can hang out and be in a club and pick someone up, and Saturday morning who knows what happens. But that's why people love cities, and this is the bit that we're going to have to get going. So you know, 
bravo to every city who takes on a nighttime mayor. Let's get the view from Soho now. Fernando, that's where you live, in, in one yeah. of the greatest nighttime spots in Britain. What do you think about this? Precisely, I chose to live there precisely because, uh, you know, I'm close to bars, you know, the best news agents, uh, theatres. Of course, it's very sad what I see now because of COVID-19 and its restrictions. But I completely agree that nighttime is so important. I love this idea of nightmares and I hope more cities will do that because I'm kind of tired of those, you know, People say, oh, I'm so productive in the morning, whatever, because I'm, I'm completely the opposite, in fact. And one city, I mean, the city I was born, actually, Sao Paulo, I think it's so dynamic precisely because of that. Twin, it's a proper 24-hour city. And even though because of COVID, there's further restrictions. But, you know, I got, I got the car at midnight. I went to a bakery close, close to my house there and I went to buy some bread sliced cold cuts and some magazines. You know, I, I think that's brilliant. And there is a market for it. And it, it's not just people that like to dance, you know. Sometimes you see like, a, you know, an elderly couple, you know, uh, the police officer who wants to, having a coffee for on his break. So I absolutely adore that. Andrew, how optimistic are you about the future in terms of this discussion changing? Do you think we may one day see the day when nighttime mayors are not really necessary anymore because decision makers understand the value of nightlife? Well, I think there's always been a wariness about you know what happens after dark. You know, many city leaders think of it as a even in our modern times think of it as a moment of some kind of like of debauchery and sin and, and ignore the kind of the real economy that goes on there. So I think you'll always need to have champions of what happens after dark. I think the great thing is I just think that there. There, you can't. All these people are saying, "Oh, the, you know, the city's dead, and you know, people are not going to return." And, and this is like going to be a, a switch where you know people will be living in the suburbs and living out in the countryside for for years and years to come before they return. I don't believe it. I believe that the minute you know we all have this fear of missing out, and and the minute that is ignited again in our cities, there will be a return to them. You know, it will take a couple of years to correct everything, but I, I, I'm very hopeful that if you put in these kinds of people in cities with power then the return to a vibrant sexy bullish crazy fun city isn't that far off just finally what are you looking forward to the most when things get back to normal fernando is it is it going buying magazines and bread in the middle of the night or what well to be honest i mean if there's any entrepreneur here in london i think that would be an excellent idea i'm sure there's a market for it i'll be a customer for sure but i miss dancing markers to be honest on a dance floor, not on my living room, which I do that every day anyway. <laughs> I do. I mean, we, we, we danced a couple of times. Yes, we have. Um, <laughs> but let's, let's, let's uh, Andrew, I want to hear from you. Um, are, are you looking forward to going to the clubs when things get back to more normal? Or, or what is it about nighttime economy you're looking forward to the most? Do you know what? There's, there's something you miss about just the crowd, the feeling of being surrounded by people. You know, the, one of the things I love when, I go to, when you go to the theatre is often, you know, even when I'm gripped by a performance, I will kind of look to my right and look to my left to see the faces in the crowd, how people are responding. That, that moment of uh, a joy, whether you're, in a, you're listening to a piece of music in a bar or you know, some, someone playing in a concert or you're in a theatre and you look around and you, you realise that everybody's kind of in the same moment, which I find incredibly... Uh, elatory you know, that's what I miss that the buzz of people around you instead of you know when you walk down the streets now people are like leaping off the pavements because you know, they're nervous about someone getting within like five meters of them 
that comfort, the comfort of strangers, that is the the thing I look forward to. Well, I look forward to seeing you on a sweaty dance floor then when things get a bit more normal. <laughs> Andrew Tyke and Fernando Augusto Vaseco, thank you very much for this. Also, thanks to our studio managers, Steph Jung and Sam Impey. I am Marcus Hippi here in London. Goodbye and thanks for being with us. 